So we're continuing our study of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to talk about that parable in a couple minutes. Very powerful parable. And as we walk through the Lord's Prayer, uh, we're using the following outline. Can we flip to the, the slide? I just want to... So as we walk through the Lord's Prayer together, God is going to reshape the way we pray. And he's not teaching us to pray like we've never prayed before. And it's quite possible that us, the disciples, that we actually do a lot of God-centered praying. And yet Jesus comes along and reminds us that there's always room for improvement on prayer. And the way that is done is we begin to pray like this, Jesus said. First of all, the person of God, our Father who is in heaven. Second, the promise of God, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a big promise from God. Then we have the provision of God, give us this day our daily bread. And there, that little part reminds us that praying for material things is not outside of the scope of a good prayer life. We need to pray for those things. And now we're on here, the pardon of God. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we got two parts to this, seeking God's forgiveness and then, of course, forgiving others. So as we think about this line, the pardon of God, we're reminded that we live in a world of broken relationships. I mean, really broken relationships. And if you just think about redemptive history, the book of Genesis starts off with broken relationships. The very first two humans in a narrative, Adam and Eve, it isn't long before they're at each other's throats. And what does Adam say? Well, it's the woman you gave me. He starts blaming Eve for what's going on in his life. And there's a certain resentment that builds up between them. And there's actually a passage that when the curse comes, the Lord looks at Adam and Eve and says, that's a passage where he says, there's going to be suffering in childbirth. But then he says, and your desire will be to your husband and he shall rule over you. And that in the Hebrew is describing a terrible power war that's going to take place between the two of them. Where they once lived in harmony together, bringing glory to God and serving each other and putting people's needs before themselves. Now Adam and Eve, as husband and wife, there's going to be a power struggle right? Who's going to pick what we do? Who's going to be admired most? Who's going to be the center of this family and the center of this life? And they're going to battle with each other. And then, of course, that spills out to the rest of their family. We have Cain that kills Abel. It isn't long before Lamech, one of the patriarchs there in the Old Testament, or at least thereabout, begins to quarrel with his neighbors. Resentment builds up in the world, and that brings violence, and there's a flood. And we're not even through the first eight chapters of Genesis. You go a little bit further, you've got Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and this terrible friction between them. Then there's a fight among the brothers, right? Ishmael and Isaac. Let us not forget Jacob and Esau, and that feud is going to go on forever. Again, not only are we not out of the book of Genesis yet, this is the chosen family. And here's the question I have for you. If the chosen family is fighting this much, how about the non-chosen families? There's a lot of quarrel. Over the next 48 hours, you're going to have terrible relationship problems. You're going to have a fight with your spouse. You're going to have a fight with a coworker. There's going to be this silent treatment that you're going to get from one of your kids you're going to give to them. You're going to invent new and creative ways to be mad at people. That's the world we live in. And so the Lord here is telling us when we pray, we are praying for these broken relationships to be healed in Christ. That's the center of this idea here, that God wants our relationships to be whole. He wants them to be right. He wants them to be enjoyable like they were created to be. And that is found through the process of forgiveness. 
we ask God's forgiveness, and then we ask uh, we let, uh, we forgive others. So there's two parts to this. I thought I'd take each in turn. Number one, we ask God for His forgiveness, and number two, we forgive other people. Let's take the two in turn. All right. First of all, and forgive us our debts. So every Christian should be confessing sin every day. That's the passage, right? I mean, give us this day our daily bread, get the word daily, and forgive us our trespasses. As certain as we are asking every day for our daily bread, we are also confessing our sins and faults to the Lord every day. That's the concept in this verse. This is Martin Luther. Remember Martin Luther who kicked off the Protestant Reformation? If you know your history, he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle. You know what the first line said? The Lord has willed that all of life is repentance. And what Luther was saying is, is that in order to walk in a relationship with God every day, all of life is repentance. You are constantly making corrections and repenting and turning away from things and turning to God. Think about a driver driving a car. Sometimes you're going the wrong way and you really got to correct. I mean, you've you got to do a K-turn or something like that. That's repentance. That's turning away from myself and turning to the right direction. God, sometimes you're really grabbing the wheel and turning around. Other times as a driver, you're making micro-corrections. You're driving along and you're just drifting a little bit so you don't take your hand off the wheel. Slight correction. Nobody in the car even notices it except the driver. And then you correct the other way. Whether it's macro correction or micro correction, Martin Luther is saying all of life is repentance. There is a constant struggle inside of us that we're warring against sin and we're constantly repenting. Sometimes it's very big and demonstrable. Everybody can see you've turned away from something to God. Other times there's micro corrections in your heart that are taking place, but all of life is repentance. Now, here's the big objection that's going to come. The objection is, and it's, it's reasonable, is, Chuck, when I became a Christian, I thought all my sins were forgiven. I thought I was forgiven past, present, and future sins. I thought all my sins were nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. If Jesus died for my sins and he paid for my sins and I'm already saved, why would I have to ask forgiveness for those sins at all? Am I not even undermining the gospel when I confess and ask God's forgiveness daily? Now, I can tell you, most Christians wrestle with that thought. It's not unreasonable. A lot of us say, look, I've already asked forgiveness for my sins. I've been forgiven by Jesus. Why would I have to confess my sins at all? Why not just let them go? And so what I want to do is give you four reasons that Christians should confess sin daily. Four reasons to confess daily, all right? Um, And the first one is this. The first one is, this is really simple, it's biblical. It's biblical. And you're like, that uh, should be more complex. It's really simple. It's biblical. It's something that God tells us to do in Scripture. So hang with me just for a moment. There are scores of passages that tell us to ask forgiveness daily. And, and I mean all the way from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. Cover to cover in Scripture, the testimony is we should be repenting and asking God's forgiveness on a regular basis. Jesus tells us here to ask the Lord to forgive us. How about 1 John 1.9? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking to believers there, not unbelievers. 
The Psalms talk about this. Psalm 32 says, When I did not confess, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day. All kinds of guilt described here. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You know what that means? That's the, the Christian word is conviction. That before David confessed his sins, when he was walking away from God, it was like God's hand was heavy upon him. God wouldn't let him go. And it's a conviction that's in your heart. Then I acknowledged my sin, and I did not cover up my iniquity, and you forgave my guilt and my sin. Psalm 41, where David says, you know, David sins against God, and again says, um, Lord, be merciful to me, heal me, heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. So the witness is clear. We could go on and on for 40 minutes talking about verses where we're told to confess our sins to God. So this is actually pretty objective. And here's what I mean by this. I understand what people mean when they say, I'm already forgiven. Why would I have to confess my sins at all? I've, I've had that question run through my mind. And when I explain the answer to some, some people, sometimes people get it. Sometimes it doesn't make sense even after I give my best answer. This is, might be one of those places where you have to say, I don't fully understand how all this makes sense, so I'm just going to submit my way to God and do what he says. And I'm just being candid on this one. There are things in the Christian life that sometimes you try to reason through and you can't get all the way to the bottom of them. And sometimes we just need to say, this may make sense in five years, it may make sense in ten years, it might not make sense until I get to heaven, but I'm going to say, put my way aside, and I'm going to believe by faith that God knows how to order my life better than I do. You might, you might say, I've had people say this, they say, I feel like I, I don't need a community, I don't need a church, I don't need a community of God's people. Uh, I get more, my faith is stronger when I walk in the woods than when I'm in a church. And I, I understand, great, you know. So you can come up with all these reasons why you don't fellowship with the people of God. And yet, the text, the Bible tells us that we encourage each other. And it, it says it's very important that we assemble together. This might be one of those areas where you just say, well... It doesn't make complete sense to me, but I have to believe by faith that God knows how to order my life better than I do. You can read what Jesus says about marriage and marriage being a covenant. And you can say, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It may never make sense to you, but you have to believe by faith. Being a Christian means I believe God knows how to order my life better than I know how to order it myself. So where I'm going with this is, this may be one of those things where you're saying to yourself, why would I have to ask forgiveness if I'm already forgiven? It doesn't really make sense. I'm going to give you reasons in a minute, but if, even if I don't get you all the way there, this may end up being one of those things where you say, to be a Christian means I'm going to yield to God and believe his wisdom is greater than mine. And I'm just going to confess my sins daily because he tells me to confess my sins daily. All right, number two is this. Confession of sins helps us walk in the relationship with God that we already have. It helps us enjoy more fully the relationship with God. Listen to what Ephesians 4.30 says. Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. Let that sink in. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You are sealed until the day of redemption. Two things are true in that verse at once, right? Number one, you're sealed. What does that mean? You are safe and secure in the family of God. 
Nobody can pluck you out of the hand of God when you belong to him. Seal there, that could mean a number of things. It could be a family ring, you know, where they seal an envelope. It could be the seal that would come from a captain of a ship or where they would lock a seal on a box and it would sail to another port and you'd break the seal and that would assure that all the contents are genuine. It could be any one of those kinds of seals. But the idea of being sealed simply means I am safe and secure, I belong to him. You can be sealed in a relationship with God and the text says you can still grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? That means a relationship with God is something like a relationship that a parent and a child would have. The child is, that's your son. That's your daughter. And there's nothing they can really do not to be your son or your daughter. But that fellowship can be breached, right? Sometimes the fellowship needs to be restored. It can be enjoyed more fully. Think about the prodigal son. The, the, when the prodigal son ran off, he, he was still legally the father's son. And the father still loved the son as a son, even received him back as a son. And yet, the son understood there's a need to ask forgiveness. Every parent understands this dynamic, where that child could never sin their way out of your life. But you do know there are times you can be grieved by actions, and you can grieve them also. And that's John's point. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we walk in fellowship with God, when we confess our sins to him, we're enjoying that relationship with God all the more. Number three is this. Confession helps us deal with things as they surface or resurface in our lives. Resurface in our lives. My church that I pastored in South Carolina, uh, we actually moved. We were were in a little church and they moved to a, a, a bigger property when I first got there. And the property we bought was 37 acres. And I mean, it was in the middle of nowhere when we bought it. It was one of those when you, you buy the property and then like 10 years later, everything grows up around it and it's a main road. That, that's what happened in the town where I was. I don't know what they did on the property before we built the church. We had a really big field that we cleared. Little League would come and play on that field. Football would practice on that field. Whatever they did in that field before we got there, I don't know, but it had something to do with rubber tires. Because tires were constantly found in that field. I mean, every day you went out, you would find a handful of of broken rubber tires in the field. I, I think they probably buried a bunch of them, you know, maybe 50 years before we bought it. Here's what we would do. We would go out and clear the field. I mean, completely clear that field of any rubber. Put it in a big garbage bag. And you'd go out four months later and get you'd find it again. Find a whole bunch of rubber out there in the back and you'd clear that. Kids would come to the church, some of them we knew, some of them we didn't. They're like, I need to do community service. We'd give them a bag. They'd go get all the rubber out of the field, and I'll give you as many hours as you can find, you know? And what would happen? Six months later, it would resurface. That's how the heart works. When you confess before God, you are, you're clearing the field. Lord, I've sinned against you. I, I'm, way, I'm way too power hungry. I'm, I'm way too angry. I, I, I'm full of the wrong kind of, you know, thoughts and, and my mind is being dark. I'm not thinking about other people the way I should think. You're clearing the field. You're setting that heart right with God. And then you come back a day or two later and what's happened? Resurfacing. And here's the key. It's not that those problems were never there. It's that they were never on the surface. Because the heart has a way of perpetually pushing problems up. So in our walk with God, there are patterns of thinking and activities. And once you clear the field, you find the next day, you still got to kind of clear the field. 
Confession allows us to deal with things as it continues to come up in life. If you look at the life of Peter, you've got a great case study here. Peter had to deal with pride his whole life. It wasn't a one-time thing. It's not like Peter cleared the field once and never had to deal with pride again. In John chapter 13, there's that foot washing episode. And Jesus says, Peter, I want to wash your feet. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. Nobody washes my feet but me, you know. And then, and, then, and then he realizes how arrogant he is. And what does he say? Jesus, wash my whole body. He still doesn't get it. Through that episode, Jesus is teaching Peter about humility, what it means to be a humble person. Peter has to deal with pride. Just a little while later in his life, he's walking with Jesus, and he makes this amazing confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon. Good. And what does Peter say to Jesus? But you're never going to go to the cross. I'm not going to allow it. It's pride. Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That's another place Peter needs to deal with his pride. But it's not going to end there. At the arrest of Jesus, Peter does something incredibly heroic and yet terribly full of pride. He pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants that are coming to arrest him. And Jesus has to rebuke that pride a third time. Peter, put your sword away. My kingdom's not of this world. Over and over in Peter's life, what's happening? He clears the field and the pride comes back. He clears the field and the pride. That's what sanctification, that's what growing in Jesus is all about. You clear the field and you learn. And then you learn some new things. And it's a constant process of learning. As we continue to confess before the Lord on a regular basis, what are we doing? Clearing the field, dealing with things as they come up in our life. If you find yourself confessing almost the same things every time you pray, you're pretty much in good company because that's what most of us are doing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Last thing we'll say about this. Why should we continue to ask God's forgiveness even though we're forgiven by him as Christians and justified? Number four, confession has a way of keeping your heart soft before God. Keeping your heart soft before God. Confession has a way of, of keeping short accounts and God wants us to keep short accounts with him and with other people. Uh, there's a passage in Hebrews 10 that tells us the church should meet together daily, we'll say regularly. Why? To stir each other up to love and good works. You've got to keep short accounts with your heart, right? Very important. And as we confess, it keeps the heart soft before God. When I was in college, I was one of these college kids that did every job under the sun. I think I had, you know, 10 college jobs. Uh, and one of those, I, for a summer, I was a mason's helper. And I did it one summer and never wanted to do it again. <laughs> it's a extremely hard work, but it was very rewarding. What I learned about being the helper of a mason, I was the guy that would mix the mortar. So all day I'd kind of mix mortar and mix it up in the wheelbarrow and deliver it somewhere. And the next thing I'd go back and do it again and do it again. I did it for about 8, 10 hours a day. And what I noticed the Masons would do is every 10 minutes or so, they would take their little trowel there and they'd dip it in the water and they'd kind of splash a little bit back on the mortar and they'd mix it up again like this. Now, why were they doing that? Because they're under the hot sun. If you let the mortar stay without slapping water on it, it dries. What are they doing? With, they are keeping short accounts with that mortar because they know if that mortar will get to a point where it's going to be extremely hard to get it soft and moldable and usable again. Same is true in our relationship with God. 
We are, confession is, you know what confession is? It's taking the trowel and slapping a little bit of water on the heart. It's keeping your heart soft before God, keeping it pliable, keeping it moldable. The first sign you have an issue with the Lord and and the first sign things are creeping up in your heart. We're throwing the water on the mortar and mixing it up a little bit. Keeping that heart soft before God. And this is true, by the way, not just of a relationship with God. It's true of keeping short accounts with people that you love. You know, if I do, when problems creep up in relationships, whether it's with kids or your spouse or your coworkers, like dealing with those right away is how you keep those relationships soft and right. But the longer you go and the longer those problems fester, they get to the point where the mortar's so hard, it's extremely difficult to get soft again. Short accounts with people, keeping the short accounts with God. So those are four reasons that we confess our sins. Four reasons we, we uh, even though we're forgiven by God, we know that, we confess our sins for the sake of fellowship. So what I want to do here, and this is kind of the heart of what I wanted to get to, talk about this second part. Forgive us our debts. Here, this is hard. As we forgive our debtors. And so here's where the parable that Todd read comes in. This is the parable of the unmerciful servant. I'm in Matthew 18 if you want to follow along. We're told in the parable here on forgiveness that Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my my brother sin against me? Should I forgive him? Jesus gives what Peter is going to think is an incredible number. Not seven, but seven times 70. And then he gives the parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought before him owed him 10,000 talents. Now stop right there. We have a king. The king is ultra rich, as we know. The king here has a servant in this kingdom that owns him 10,000 talents. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? Well, we could talk about these numbers for a long time. I'll cut to the chase here. One talent is about 6,000 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. One times 6,000 times 10,000 days wage. We're talking 60, maybe maybe 100 million dollars. The whole point of the parable is this is it's a hyperbole. This is ridiculous. Nobody would ever owe somebody else this amount of money. That's the point of the parable. It's almost like if we were going to translate this, we would say, and he owed the king zillions and zillions of dollars. That's how we would translate it today. So in keeping with tradition, this man can only do one thing. He's got to sell everything he has. He sells his family. He sells all his goods. And he even sells himself into slavery. It's all he can do. It's what the ancient world they did. The king in verse 26 is moved with compassion and he forgives the debt. And no doubt the king here is similar to Jesus, the king that forgives us. Now that man is off. He's been forgiven the zillions and zillions of dollars and he's walking home. And what does he come across in verse 28? When a servant went out, he found one of his own fellow servants that owned him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarii. Uh, that would, 100 denarii is not even the interest on the loan that he owed the other man. This man owes him 100 denarii, a very small sum in comparison. A pebble on the beach compared to Mount Everest to what he owed. But what does he do? He takes him and he seizes him. And he begins to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. I'm not so sure this is a, a metaphor. You know, in the ancient world, we got Roman writings where you would actually take the debtor around the neck. They would squeeze it until blood came out of the nose. 
That's what's depicted in this parable here. He takes this man that owes him 600 denarii by the neck. He squeezes as tight as he can. Verse 30, he has him thrown in prison. And then when a king finds out, what do you think the king's going to think? Well, verse 31, the king summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pled with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the king or the master delivered him to the jailer until he should pay all his debt. So will my heavenly father do to everyone that does not forgive the brother from the heart. And so that's the parable of the unmerciful servant. I want to give you three thoughts on forgiving other people. And let's start, let's put them in the form of questions. Let's start with the first one. What exactly is resentment? What does it mean for a person to be bitter? And here's a definition that I'm working with. It's not original with me. Resentment is the feeling that someone owes you something. Now park on that for a minute. It's the feeling that someone owes you something. Resentment is you trying to extract a debt from somebody that you feel owes you something. That person has hurt me. They've taken something from me. And I'm going to extract from them every last penny, literally or metaphorically, until they pay. And only then will I be satisfied. Resentment or bitterness is the feeling that someone owes you something. Have you ever noticed in the Bible... The language of forgiveness is almost always put in financial terms. That's the illustration. Give us, uh, rather, forgive us our debts. It's an accounting term, as we forgive our debtors. Or how about when Paul writes to Philemon? Remember Philemon? Philemon has been wronged by Onesimus. And what does Paul say? Paul says, whatever he owes you, put that on my account. That's accounting language. It's amazing how often in Scripture, when the apostles talk about resentment and forgiveness, and Jesus too, they put it in terms of accounting language. Why is that? Because they understood resentment is when you feel like somebody owes you something, and you're trying to extract a debt. We feel like someone's taking something from us, and we're holding them accountable. And what we're doing, we're really doing verse 28, right? Remember when he grabbed the servant and wrapped his hands around the neck? Only we don't, we don't do that literally. We do that in our hearts. <laughs> That's what resentment is. Resentment is our way of holding them accountable for every last nickel. And though we won't put our hands out on someone, or maybe we don't even talk about it, in our hearts, we are, oh, that tension. We are just holding them accountable. The hand is around the neck. We are going to extract every, we're going to make them suffer until we feel like we've been paid back. That's the battle in the heart. And that's what's happening in this parable. It's when you feel like you've been wronged by a spouse, maybe present or ex. Feel like a neighbor. Maybe even as a kid. Something happened to you. And we go through our lives with this feeling, that you, the tension that's inside of us. Somebody can slander your character. And when they slander your character, what happens? We get resentful. We're going to hold them accountable. They've taken something from us, and we're going to hold them accountable for that payment until we get every last penny. That is the hands around the neck. It's metaphorical. It's rarely done literally in this world. But in our hearts, we got hands around the neck. So what is resentment? Resentment is the feeling that somebody owes us something. That brings us to a second question, which is this. What's the problem with resentment? There's a lot of problems. The problem, though, here is resentment holds a certain power over people. It holds a certain power over people. In other words, 
There are a lot of cases where people can't pay back a debt they owe you. Even if they want to pay it back, they can't pay it. And so we hold on to resentment for that reason. I mean, think about this. Uh, There's a metaphor here that I heard where, let's say somebody gets hit by a car. You know, they get hit by a car, they lose 12 months of their life to pain and surgeries and rehab, and then they settle with the insurance company, and they're given an extraordinary amount of money for this. They're given $200 million, say, right? You would think $200 million would make up for a year for most people, right? But it never will. Why? Because you can't get that year back. You lost a year of holding your baby. You lost a year of running around on a field. You lost a year of being intimate with your spouse. They couldn't give you that year back even if they tried. Let's say your spouse commits adultery, right? They can apologize and they can repent. And frankly, they could be on their best behavior for the next 40 years. But something's been taken that can't be paid back no matter how hard somebody tries. The the problem with resentment is there's always something that can't be paid back. If you grew up where your father was not a very good person, he can come back later and ask forgiveness, but something's been taken from you. If you were bullied in school, you make friends with those kids later in life, you still don't get middle school back. If somebody shames you publicly and runs your name through the mud, and then they come back in sackcloth and ashes, and try, they still can't make it 100% right. Something's been taken that can't be paid back. You know it. And therefore, we get very resentful and we hold on to those things in our hearts. There are some debts that just can't be repaid despite the best efforts. And that's where we come in with this idea of just holding people accountable. We're going to watch them suffer until we extract every last penny. I don't know if you're familiar with Lewis Smedes. He's a Christian theologian from the last uh, century. And he wrote a book called Forgive and Forget. Forgive and forget. And he recounts in there a play. Uh, it's a play about a man named Hermann Engel. And Engel was a German uh, general in World War II. And he went up on trial at the Norberg court. He was given 30 years in prison for crimes against humanity. And in the story, he's one of the very few people that survived the 30 years in prison. When his time is up, he ends up taking his wife and they go as far into a cabin, deep into the woods where they end up in a cabin. And at the time, he's in the cabin, he intends to live out his days forgotten in as much peace as he can. But there's Mario. Mario is a French journalist that knows about Engel. And so he has a plan to take revenge on him. <clears throat> and what Mario does is he fires up all the town people. And he's going to bring the town people that night to burn down the little cabin. And everybody inside, including Engel and his wife, are going to die. So as a plot unfolds. Mario wants some answers. And just before, just on the eve, when the people are about to make their way to burn down Engel's cabin, he knocks on Engel's door, Mario does, and he starts asking questions. He identifies who the man is. You're the German, uh, you know, general, and he starts to ask questions. And finally, he, he tells them, he says, we got people on the way up. They're going to they're gonna burn this place down in a matter of minutes. Somewhere in that conversation, Mario, the journalist, is moved with some kind of compassion. And he looks at Engel and he says, you know what? I I can get you out of here. I can lead you through the woods and get you out of here. And Engel, now in tears, the old German general said, I will will follow you, but I I have one condition. He said, I want you to forgive me first. 
Would you please forgive me and then I'll, then I'll follow you? And Mario, of course, had already killed this man a thousand times in his mind. It's a strange thing in the story. And this is just something to think about. Mario was willing to save the man's life, but he would never forgive him. And sure enough, he refuses to lead him out. The town people come up and burn down the cabin. And here's the question that Lewis Smedes poses. Why was forgiving even harder than saving this man's life? I can't even explain that, but that resonates a little bit, I think. There is something about us where you're even willing to help people. You're even willing to save their life, but forgiveness is a whole nother level. Why is that? Because of resentment. Resentment holds an incredible power over people. Resentment makes us hold on to that neck in our hearts until everything is paid, which we know probably can't happen. All right, last thought is this. How do we, how do we find, a, find a power to forgive? Where is the strength to forgive other people? If we're holding people accountable, just waiting for every last penny, this resentment has terrible, ugh, terrible power over us. Where do we actually find the strength to forgive? And the answer, of course, is Christians. That's in Christ. That's in Christ. Ephesians 4 tells us, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us. That's the power for a Christian to forgive. Somebody needs to absorb the debt. Somebody needs to absorb it. And it's not going to be you. It's Christ on the cross that absorbs our debt. And therefore, we have the strength to absorb another. It's no accident that in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. And the power to forgive other people is found when we find ourselves forgiven by God. We realize we've been forgiven 10,000 talents, a massive amount of money. Letting go of 600 denarii all of a sudden is possible. Absorb the debt. It's a story. I'll close with this. Um, Robert Bruce, Scotland, you know, Braveheart, that stuff. 14th century prince, he was the one that led Scotland to independence from England. And there near the end of the conflict, there's a story, I'm told it's a true story, that Robert Bruce is escaping from the English that are chasing him. And so the English go and find Robert Bruce's own bloodhounds, and they put him on the trail of the master of Bruce. And there Bruce and his servant are running through the woods, and they can hear the barking bloodhounds in the back. Certainly these bloodhounds are going to follow him right to the end. And the servant is terrified. But Robert Bruce says, I got a plan. Settle your heart. And both of them take a plunge into the river. And they swim a little bit and they walk a little bit up the river there to a creek. And they get out and they start to walk. And what Robert Bruce does in that moment is he gets the bloodhounds off his trail because the scent is no longer there. And I can tell you, resentment has a way of stalking us and following us. And it's going to try to follow you right till the bitter end. Until we what? until we jump in that stream of grace and we jump in that stream of forgiveness. We plunge ourselves underneath his blood, as the old writers used to say, and then resentment no longer follows us and no longer has the power over us that it once had. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace and your love. This is a hard topic. Give us your strength. Give us your grace. And I pray you give us the power to forgive. I got to believe that in a congregation this size, we all struggle with resentment. 
Perhaps today, someone under the sound of my voice is really in the grip of resentment. And the hands are around the neck, at least in the heart. And oh, how that affects us spiritually, emotionally, psychologically. May we, may they, may all of us find ourselves in the fountain, in the river of grace, plunged into the blood of your son, Jesus, that as we walk up that river, the scent of resentment is gone. The bloodhounds of resentment cannot chase us. And we are freed from the grasp of resentment in our lives. So Lord, I pray, speak to our hearts. May the love of God be strong. In Jesus' name, amen.